think the Lord was with me as well, so that's okay. All right, I'd ask that you please turn in your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 3. I think you'll be served if you're able to follow along with the sermon uh, with an open Bible, but we'll have the words uh, printed on the screen for you as well. Uh, Many people believe that the book of Lamentations was written by the prophet Jeremiah. Lamentations is a series of five uh, poems of lament, and they uh, represent some of the uh, weightiest expressions of grief that you'll find in the entire Bible. In chapter 3, which we're going to look at uh, this morning, is an acrostic poem in the Hebrew. Uh, So every set of three verses represents one of the uh, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and we're going to be reading the first half of this poem this morning. Lamentations 3. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turns aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I've become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. 
for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Lord, we ask that you would help us to believe what we cannot yet see with our eyes. And we also ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to take hold of that which you have promised to us in the gospel of your Son. And we pray that as we look to these hard words, these real words, that yet we would have comfort as we turn to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, This week has been a a gut-wrenching week for many of us. Death has taken two of our members, one tragically. And so as we open the Bible together, I want to acknowledge that we come to our study with uh, hurting hearts. And it's in times such as these that we can give thanks that God has given us the Bible which speaks to all of our circumstances, including our darkest moments including the ones that feel like they'll never end. Now, I've selected this text this morning because I believe it speaks to our pain in these particular losses, but I want to say that this sermon is not principally intended to speak to the deaths of Braden or Joyce. We're going to do that at the respective funeral services. So while this sermon was uh, prompted by these painful circumstances, I don't want you to think that it's just about them. Rather, as we gather around the Word together this morning, I want to address a broader, relevant question. How do Christians respond when our world is turned upside down? Now, it could be the death of someone you care about, or perhaps it's cancer or Alzheimer's, or the loss of some other ability. Maybe it's the sudden fracturing of a relationship that you once cherished or the loss of a job or financial disaster. It's that feeling of tragedy. It's something all of us in different ways and to different degrees will face. It's that experience of the bottom falling out, the earth uh, giving way beneath our feet. It's shocking. It's confusing. It's painful. It's that disturbing sense that all of our assumptions about the world and about our future have crumbled in an instant. And now you're living in a different world, a world where things will never be the same. I want us to look to the scriptures together this morning to see the way forward through those moments, whatever they might be for you. When our world has fallen apart, where will we go? Is there a way through the darkness? Because as we turn to the book of Lamentations, we will find someone who understands us in those moments. This is a book written not by someone who is a stranger to catastrophe. With all the realism of a fellow sufferer, our passage is going to show us that while calamity happens under God, our path to hope is ultimately found in God. Or maybe to put it another way, though our grief comes from God, our relief will come from God as well. So when our world comes apart, the path from despair to hope involves a lamenting to God, a remembering of God, and a waiting upon God. And that's going to be our outline this morning, a lamenting to God, a remembering of God, and a waiting upon God. 
Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know that Jerusalem was an important place for God's people in the Old Testament. It had come to occupy a central place in God's plan to redeem and restore a world that had been uh, broken by sin. In one sense, Jerusalem was the epicenter of God's plan of salvation in the Old Testament. it, It came to represent God's chosen people. And at its peak, Jerusalem was a glorious place. In fact, you might remember when the Queen of Sheba came to uh, visit King Solomon in Jerusalem, she had her breath taken away by all that she saw and heard there. It was a secure city. It had walls running along the outside to protect it from its enemies. And at the center was a magnificent temple, the place where uh, God was supposed to dwell specially with his people on earth. And the people of Israel would regularly flock to Jerusalem for their appointed feasts. So perhaps you can imagine uh, the the throngs of of celebrating pilgrims going uh, with all festive spirit into the city. One of Israel's uh, songs, Psalm 87, celebrates the privileged place, the glorious nature of the city of Jerusalem. It was the city that God had founded the psalmist says. It was the place that God loved in a unique way. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God, the psalmist says. Well, it's a different scene when we come to Lamentations. This book was written after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 587 B.C., and Lamentations' first two chapters describe with a poetic vividness a city that had been brought to utter ruin. The city is desolate. Its streets are empty. Many of its inhabitants have been uh, brought into exile. Those that remain, including women and children, are starving in the streets. The walls that once kept the city safe are gone. The gates have been torn off their hinges. The enemies of God's people look and they laugh at what has happened to this place. There's bodies, there's death everywhere. Maybe if I were to try and impress upon you just the horror of this scene, the closest thing I could do would be to direct you to pictures uh, that have come out of the war in Ukraine. Right There we see uh, the cities that have been hollowed out by bombs. Rubble is everywhere. Uh, There's people who are displaced and hungry and cold. And there's the signs and smells of death and destruction all around. That's Jerusalem here in Lamentations. Jerusalem was supposed to be God's city. How could this happen? It's so overwhelming as the prophet looks at this, it's enough to make him physically ill. He says in Lamentations 2.11, my eyes are worn out from weeping, my stomach is in knots, my heart is poured out on the ground. That's where we find ourselves, which brings us to chapter 3. The prophet is continuing to pour out his heart in lament. And for the first 18 verses, he's giving a pain-filled expression to his experience of this national calamity. As we read those verses, maybe you noticed the most common word. It's he. Verse after verse begins by speaking of he. He has driven and brought me into darkness. 
He has made my flesh and my skin waste away, verse 4. He has besieged and and enveloped me, verse 5. No name is stated, but it's clear the subject is God. And this only compounds the pain. Because it's God who has seemingly turned on his people in his city. Though it was the the Babylonians who had, had dealt the destruction, ultimately the prophet knows that God is the one who stands over it. Now this is consistent with the Bible's teaching elsewhere. God tells the prophet Isaiah, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. We might not know why God does certain things, but we know that he's in control of all his creatures and their actions. We refer to this as God's providence. On the one hand, only in a universe under the providence of a personal God is there any true possibility of hope in despair. Because if God doesn't rule over all things and order all things, then there's an element of uncertainty in everything. If there's no God or no God who orders the events of the world, then every hardship that befalls us is just a matter of bad cosmic luck. And we can have no true hope that things will ever get better, that the dice will come out differently. In a world without providence, we're left to the cruelty of chance. But on the other hand, we can acknowledge that there is something personal and painful about God's providence at times. One preacher likened it to a trusting infant uh, being brought to the doctor for their first shots. I can remember this uh, happening with our uh, oldest child. Before the cry, when the, the needle went in, there was this look of pain betrayal on her face as she received the needle, as if to say, Dad, how could you? Well, perhaps that best describes the prophet's lament here. How could you? Now, if Jeremiah is the author of these laments, he knows the answer. This particular tragedy was an act of of judgment, which God had warned Judah about for a long time. And Jeremiah had been one of the prophets who had warned God's people, if they continued to sin and break covenant with God, there would be consequences. Now, it's very important here to say that not all tragedies are a direct result of personal sin, right? Job was a righteous sufferer. You can think of of, uh, the blind man in John 9. Jesus explicitly says that that man's suffering was not a result of his sin or the sin of his parents. But what's worth noting here is that uh, this tragedy that has happened is, it's not a personal tragedy, it's a national tragedy, and yet... The prophet so closely associates himself with God's people that he personalizes this grievous event. Their tragedy has become his in a very personal sense. He's he's living in it and he feels it. And though the fault didn't lie with him, he's come to share in and experience the misery. And in his expression of grief, the prophet expresses himself in such vivid, stark language that perhaps some of us could relate to it. Maybe we've felt these very things at times. The prophet's been driven into darkness without any light, verse 2. In verse 6, he says that he's living in darkness. It's like the sun has been extinguished from view. Darkness confuses, right? When, when we're in the dark, uh, we freeze up because we, we're not sure where to go. It's disorienting. He's lost. 
And this is closely related to, to feeling trapped. Maybe you've, ever, maybe you've been in a trial where you felt like there's no way out. You're in some painful circumstance and there's no uh, just switch that you can flip that would suddenly allow you to get around the pain. Well, that's how the prophet felt. He felt surrounded by bitterness and trouble, verse 5. He felt like God had put a wall around him to trap him in. He feels like God's attacking him, verses 10 through 12. God felt like a fearsome predator stalking him. In verse 12, the prophet says, It felt like God had put a bullseye on him to use him for target practice, and the blows keep coming and coming and coming. Life has lost all its sweetness. It's become bitter. He makes this point in verses 5 and 15 and 19. Wormwood and gall were bitter plants, unpleasant to the taste. The pain of his circumstances was difficult to swallow. And all this leads to the prophet despairing of life itself in verses 17 and 18. He says he has no peace. Happiness is like a long-forgotten dream. All the color has been drained from his world. His strength fails him. Hope feels like it is withered away. The prophet gives expression to the dark valley of despair. If you've ever been there before, or perhaps you're there now, perhaps it's helpful for you to see that there's someone in the Bible who puts words to your experience. To know that there have been godly people before who have been where you are now, who have felt the types of things that you are feeling, who have, have cried out in this way. In fact, far from such cries offending God, he has put them here so that you'd have prayers to pray. He put them here so that you would know that sometimes the prayers of faith are prayed, are prayed with tears in our eyes and anguish in our hearts. But what we notice in this lament is that there is a movement from despair to hope. And because we've been in the valley of despair with the prophet, we know he isn't going to give us the platitudes of someone who is untouched by tragedy. This isn't someone who can just pretend uh, that things are fine. He's sitting in the devastation. He can see the ruins. He can hear the cries. And yet we see in verse 21 and following a path to hope. What's the bridge that takes us from despair to hope? How do we find hope amidst the honest laments of verses 1 to 18? Well, it's by an act of remembering. That's our second point, a remembering of God. The prophet's heart is understandably consumed by tragedy. Verse 20 tells us he could hardly think of anything else. You've maybe been there. But then he recalls something. And the Hebrew grammar here is significant. It's a causative verb, meaning that there's an active or intentional force at work to, to bring something about. The prophet's not saying all of a sudden just a thought occurred to him. It just sort of popped into his head. No, the idea is much more intentional here. It's like when you go down to, to your basement in search of your favorite sweater and you go rummaging around in the boxes. You go down and you get it. Might take some work, some searching, but then you bring it back upstairs and you put it in your closet. That's the sense here. The prophet exerts himself to bring a truth to mind. 
He doesn't ignore or forget the tragic reality around him, but he adds a new thought to the equation. But what is it that he recalls? Well, we see the answer in verses 22 to 24. He recalls the revealed character of God. His steadfast love, his abundant mercy, his great faithfulness. Now, I say the revealed character of God because the prophet was not just sort of reaching into a a hat and pulling out random attributes of God here. What he he calls to mind specifically are, are, are things that God has revealed about himself when he entered into a covenant relationship with his people. It brings to mind when God met with Moses on Mount Sinai when he was gathering his people there. And there God identified himself saying, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Mercy, steadfast love, faithfulness. These truths were at the heart of God's dealings with his people and their dealings with him. And so, the prophet calls to mind what God has said concerning himself, that he's merciful towards sinners, that he's abounding in steadfast love, that he's faithful. He always keeps his promises. He's dependable. But it's not just that God is these things. It's that he's these things in infinite, unrelenting measure. Now, maybe you've had the misfortune of going to a restaurant and ordering something there only uh, to have an apologetic uh, server come back and and say, well, I'm sorry, uh, sir, we don't actually have the poutine on the menu or whatever it is that you're ordering. Now, I'm tempted to respond, then why is it on your menu? Well, God has published that in himself there is fullness of steadfast love and mercy such that though his children would come to him a million times, He never has to come back and say sheepishly, well, I'm sorry, I'm out of steadfast love. Or it appears we ran out of mercy. What's more, he promises that his mercy shall be fresh and suited to each day. And there's an encouragement in that too. God doesn't have stale mercies. He doesn't give his children the same mercies that he gave them last week. Some people don't like eating leftovers. I eat leftovers. Well, there are no leftovers when it comes to God's mercies. They are new every morning. He gives you the mercies that you need for today. And when tomorrow comes, he's going to give you the mercies that he needs, that you need for tomorrow. Why? Because he has promised to be the portion of all who trust in him, verse 24. God is my portion, the prophet cries out. Verse 24 is what connects God's mercies to my sufferings. It says that I can expect that God's love and God's mercy come to meet me in the rubble of my circumstances because he has given himself to me. His benefits are mine because he is mine. One commentator illustrated this point powerfully with the words of a Rwandan Christian who had lost his family and his home in a genocide that had took place in his country. He said, I never knew Jesus was all I needed until Jesus was all I had. God is our portion. 
Now, there's an important lesson for us in this. When calamity strikes, we need more than insipid well wishes. We need divinely revealed truth. We need the Bible in our hands. We need the Bible in our prayers and in our songs. When the prophet goes searching in his memory for some anchor amidst the storms, he clings to what God has said about himself. Though my world might have fallen apart, this is true north, the prophet says. The fixed point on the horizon that's going to bring me safely to shore. Where else can we go? I was so encouraged on Wednesday night as, as we gathered together. I was so encouraged by your prayers. They were earnest prayers. They were heartfelt prayers. They were Bible prayers. What else can we say? Where else can we go? What else is true? We go to the word, what God has said about himself. And therefore, the prophet says, I have hope. I have a confident expectation for the future of deliverance. That the God who has afflicted us will not cast us off entirely. He won't allow the story to end in ruin. That he's not done acting, but indeed he will act according to his never run out steadfast love. Hope, however, entails waiting or expectation. We don't hope, of course, for things that we have already. And waiting is what we see in verses 25 to 30. And that's our third point. The prophet laments. He remembers and now he waits. Verses 25 to 30 help us to see that moving from hopelessness to hope is not the same thing as moving from problem to solution. In these verses, the sufferer still sits alone He still endures derision and mistreatment in verse 30. His laying hold of the truth about who God is doesn't make those things instantly disappear. Now, sometimes God graciously, kindly does grant relief or deliverance, but the the movement to hope is less about an immediate change in our circumstances or even a change in our pain, and it's more about a change in our disposition toward the future. It means that in affliction, I can look ahead and I can see the sure promise of better days. The prophet remembers the Lord. He waits for the Lord. In affliction, he patiently, quietly, he's he's humbled, he endures. He's sitting there. He's waiting for God to act. But waiting is hard though, isn't it? Even in the most mundane waiting, we can get restless and impatient. Occasionally, I'll have appointments where uh, the person I'm meeting with isn't there on time uh, uh, for our meeting, and so I'll wait for a few minutes, and then a few minutes more, and then I begin to wonder, how long am I going to keep doing this? Well, that's a really trivial example, but perhaps it gets at the question of the waiting sufferer. It's not how long am I going to keep doing this, but perhaps it's how long can I keep doing this? Will I always feel this way? Will I carry this hurt forever? How can I keep waiting, keep facing another tomorrow when he won't be there or when she won't be there or when my body just won't work the way it once did, when I've lost everything, when my future is in tatters? How do I wait when my world's been torn apart? Once more, the prophet takes us back to the doctrine of God in verses 31 and 32. For the Lord will not cast off 
forever. But though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. I have hope and I can wait because this is what I know concerning God, that whatever my experience, the Lord does not cast off his children forever. He may discipline us, he may sanctify us, he may test us, but he will never forget about us forever. Yes, God causes grief. He ordains suffering. And often we don't know why he does it, but he does. But where he afflicts his children, he promises always, 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 always to send mercy in its wake. And as if we, he wants us to make sure that, that we know that the cure would be greater than the wound, he says his compassion or his mercy is applied in a manner consistent with the abundance of his steadfast love. But let's dig just a little bit deeper. Why? Why should we expect that mercy shall follow grief? Well, at the very center of this poem, which is at the very center of the book of Lamentations, we have our answer. Verse 33. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. In other words, God does not inflict pain on us just for kicks. He's not like the cruel boy on the sidewalk who's just burning ants with his magnifying glass because he can. Might feel that way at at, at times, like there's a target on our back, but he never afflicts us for pleasure. Theologians such as Jonathan Edwards have spoken of God's strange work and his natural work. Now, I know there's some limitations to this language, but Edwards and others are are trying within the restrictions of our language to communicate that God does not send mercy and he does not send grief upon his people in the same way. Mercy comes forth readily from God. Trouble comes forth slowly. He's said to be slow to anger, but ready to forgive. Micah 7.18, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He doesn't even delight in the death of the wicked. Brothers and sisters, he does not afflict you from his heart. Now the payoff of this requires that we backtrack. Because God does not afflict from the heart, we can be assured that his mercy will follow trouble. And because mercy will follow trouble, we can know that he will not cast off his children forever. God's character will not allow this to happen. He's bound by his very nature to draw his suffering children to his breast to comfort them. So therefore, we can wait in hope, in affliction. Now you might say, wait a second. You are letting God off the hook far too easily. You admit that God causes these awful afflictions. They're they're from him, you've said, and we're just supposed to take him at his word. That he's loving, that he's merciful, that he doesn't afflict us gladly. Isn't that sort of like uh, trusting the art thief with the keys to the art gallery? Why should we trust him? I think that's an understandable question. On the one hand, we might just say that we should trust him because he's God and God is truth, and the Bible says that God's not a man, that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. So, of course, we should trust him. But knowing our needs, he gives us far more. He gives us a case study. 
a model, a proof of concept, a down payment. For there's another sympathetic prophet who identifies himself with the sufferings of his people. One who enters the suffering of his people so much so that he stands with them in it. Even as the prophet could speak these words, they could have just as easily come from the lips of our Lord Jesus as he endured the agonies of divine judgment on the cross. Consider the words of Lamentations 3 on Jesus' lips. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. And there on the cross, having identified with his, himself with his people, Jesus is hung out to die under the cover of darkness. He's secured by nails and cannot escape, though he would not. He cries out to his father, but his prayers feel like they're shut out. He experiences a sense of forsakenness. God's arrows are turned against the one who became sin for us while men mock and taunt him. When offered wine to drink to to numb or dull the pain, he refused it so that he might endure the full depth and bitterness of suffering. It was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief. God did it. God ordained it. God's chosen one there, crushed. No valley of despair has ever been so deep, so dark, so painful as his. And yet he passed through it all for us, trusting that his father would not cast off his own forever, that though he may cause grief, yet there is a tsunami of mercy and compassion that will follow. He endured the cross, despising the shame because he knew these words to be true. And the resurrection vindicates the son's confidence in the father's love, that grief is swallowed up in glory. And beloved, if you belong to Jesus by faith, then you are are joined to him in such a way that you can be assured that you will never be cast off forever. That though God may send grief, and sometimes he does, in far greater measure, he will have compassion on his children. By his resurrection, Jesus shows the way to sufferers. He goes before us to show the way in the dark. I have the image of of someone uh, crawling through a dark cave when it gets small and uncertain as to the way forward. Someone crawls in the cave ahead of time uh, and and you're wondering, okay, is is this safe to travel through? And then you hear a voice call out from the other side, it's all clear. You can come through. There's light on the other side. Jesus suffers for us and he suffers like us. There's great solace in his sympathy. But his resurrection tells us more. That there's light on the other side. That the way is clear. That though it looks dark and scary and and lonely at times, it will not always be so. The suffering we experience when our world is turned upside down is real. Right? There's no doubt about that. We know that. But it doesn't tell the full story. For that, we look to the character of God. We look to the promises of God. And we look to the Son of God. His suffering with us. His resurrection for us. His guarantee to us. That the Lord's compassion can be clung to even in the dark. 
because he has shown us that there is light on the other side, that the Lord will not cast off forever. Great is his faithfulness. Amen. O oh Lord, with the prophet, we want to say that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and that your mercies never come to an end. We thank you that they are new every morning and that, Lord, in your faithfulness, we can rely upon this. We thank you, Lord, that you do not cast off forever. That though, Lord, you do in your providence cause grief and bring pain, yet you will have compassion. And we thank you that this is not just some vague, abstract truth that we hope will be true, but because of our Savior who has gone before us, as the forerunner, as the pioneer of our salvation, we can know that though the days feel awfully dark, yet there is light on the other side. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this. Amen. Would you please join in singing with me, Great is Thy Faithfulness, as uh, we sing this song based upon these truths. Please stand.
uh, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and remain with you all. Amen.